Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Tuesday, July 28th. I'm Noreen Gáceres. These are today's headlines. There are now 16.5 million confirmed cases of coronavirus across the planet, while here in the U.S., the death toll is rising in 27 states. President Trump seemingly undermining Dr. Anthony Fauci on Twitter while announcing that he will in fact accept his party's nomination in hard-hit North Carolina. And the president warning that he will send additional federal agents to Portland as protests continue in the Oregon City. This and much more today on You News, recorded live in our newsroom in Miami. The planet reaching a grim milestone, more than 650,000 people dying due to COVID-19. The World Health Organization warning that the pandemic is the worst they face and the virus continues to accelerate. While here in the U.S., some governors are taking measures to avoid becoming the next hotspot. It's been nearly six months since the World Health Organization, back on January 30th, declared COVID-19 a public health emergency of international concern. This is the sixth time a global health emergency has been declared under the international health regulations, uh, but it's easily the most severe. Almost 16 million cases have now been reported to WHO and more than 640,000 deaths. And the pandemic continues to accelerate. In the past six weeks, the total number of cases has roughly doubled. Experts warning that in the U.S., the world's leader in number of cases, we are on track to hit 200,000 deaths by early fall. If you look at the deaths as they're occurring right now, about 1,000 per day, unless we get our arms around this and get it suppressed, we will going to have further suffering and further death. And that's the reason why, as I've often said many, many times, there are things that we can do right now in the absence of a vaccine that can turn us around. The warnings prompting some governors to take action. In Missouri, St. Louis now limiting crowds to 50 people and closing bars early. In Kansas, Governor Laura Kelly considering a return to phase two. In Kentucky, bars now closed. And in Indiana, a mask mandate going into effect Monday. But protests like this one in Arkansas are still happening all over the country, forcing some cities and states to crack down on violators. In New York Governor Cuomo tweeting this video of a concert in the Hamptons on Saturday saying, I am appalled. The Department of Health will conduct an investigation. We have no tolerance for the illegal and reckless endangerment of public health. The event's organizers stressing it followed CDC guidelines and made best efforts to ensure social distancing guidelines were maintained. In Florida, this gym owner was arrested after repeatedly violating county health orders, arguing his guests can't be forced to wear a mask. This as the state continues to struggle. The vice president visiting Florida for the second time in recent weeks to address the situation. And the largest medical system, Jackson Health, asking state leaders to help by ordering a statewide mask mandate. Meanwhile, in Hardhead, California, the governor deploying a strike team to the Central Valley, a new hotspot seeing a positivity rate of more than 17%. So today we're announcing $52 million investment 
new dollars that will be put into the Central Valley, uh, into the eight counties to improve our isolation protocols, our quarantine protocols, our testing protocols, uh, and to enhance our healthcare workers uh, by providing more support uh, as well as more personnel. And as the beginning of the school year approaches in Miami, the city is now providing free coronavirus testing for all children. And meanwhile, at the White House, President Trump downplaying his national security advisor's coronavirus diagnosis, while also highlighting progress on the development of a COVID-19 vaccine during a visit to North Carolina. Andrea Linares has the latest. White House officials won't say when President Trump last met with National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, the most high-ranking official to test positive to COVID-19, although he was last seen at the White House on Thursday. No, I haven't seen him lately. I heard he, uh, he tested. Yeah, uh, I have not seen him. I'm calling him later. Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany recently said they're together often. You have Ambassador O'Brien, who sees him in person twice a day. Economics advisor Larry Kudlow suggested O'Brien may have caught the virus from his daughter, who tested positive before he did. O'Brien was in France earlier this month, seen not wearing a mask as he met with his European counterparts. Meanwhile, President Trump traveled to North Carolina to tour a Fujifilm vaccine lab facility. The president also touted the country's progress in producing a COVID-19 vaccine under Operation Warp Speed. Uh, you know, before, just before I left the White House in the Oval Office, we had a meeting with our doctors, scientists, some others, and they're, they're making tremendous prog progress with respect to uh, therapeutics. And in regards to that COVID-19 vaccine, Trump and other top officials celebrated the announcement that Moderna's vaccine candidate entered phase three of trials and said that a second vaccine is likely to enter phase three in a matter of days. Well, I heard very positive things, but by the end of the year, we think we're in very good shape to be doing that. By the end of this year, we're going to be in terms of the vaccine. Meanwhile, on Twitter, the president undermining the nation's top infectious disease expert, sharing a tweet from the War Room pandemic account, which reads, Dr. Fauci has misled the American people on many issues, but in particular on dismissing hydroxychloroquine and calling remdesivir the new gold standard. The president also raising eyebrows with his recent Yankees opening pitch claim. Trump saying he would throw out the first pitch on August 15th. But according to the New York Times, the president's staff was caught by surprise because there was no trip on the books and no indication the Yankees had extended an invitation. National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien is said to be doing well. He is suffering mild symptoms from the coronavirus. However, a prominent Republican who's having complications is Herman Cain. He has now spent five weeks in the hospital and is being treated with oxygen for his lungs. Cain had attended Trump's rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and did not wear a mask. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, U News. Thank you, Andrea, for that report. And Attorney General William Barr is testifying before the House Judiciary Committee. House Democrats have been trying to question Barr for a long time about several issues, but the pandemic delayed the hearing. His appearance before the Democrat-led committee comes amid accusations that he has politicized the Justice Department and abused his powers. Edwin Beatty has the details from Washington, D.C. Edwin? 
In over a year, Attorney General William Barr offering a congressional testimony, and Democrats and Republicans have been playing the role during the last couple of minutes. Republicans defending strongly the job of Barr inside the Department of Justice, but Democratic uh, Party slamming hardly uh, Barr for all the things that he has been doing. For a couple of examples that I can give to you is the response of the Department of Justice on the Russia probe, also the way they send a lot of federal agents to cities to uh, according to them, to fight crime. But let's listen to what Chairman Nadler had to say on his opening statement. Your tenure has been marked by a persistent war against the department's professional corps in an apparent attempt to secure favors for the president. In this Justice Department, the president's enemies will be punished and his friends will be protected, no matter the cost, no matter the cost to liberty, no matter the cost of justice. The attorney general defended himself, making clear that he's not in the Department of Justice just to defend the friends of President Trump. Take a listen. I'm supposedly uh, punishing the president's enemies and helping his friends. What enemies have I indicted? Who, who, could you point to one indictment that has been under the department that you feel is, is unmerited? that you feel violates the rule of law? One indictment. Now, you say I helped the president's friends. The, the cases that are cited, the Stone case and the Flynn case, are both cases where I determined uh, that some intervention was necessary to rectify the rule of law, to make sure people are treated the same. Mr. Barr also adding that he has been working in the Department of Justice for a long time and that right now he has nothing to lose and he's not there just to defend President Trump. He's trying to take the politics out of the Department of Justice and he claimed he has been doing a good job. Lorraine? And Edwin, before you go, let me ask you this. On Capitol Hill, Republicans unveiled a $1 trillion coronavirus relief proposal. They're reducing the federal unemployment benefit from $600 to $200. And the measure includes a number of major line items for military spending. What has the response been from Democrats? Well, Lorraine, the Democrats have just started the negotiations with members of the White House, but they are already claiming that the negotiations could be delayed because, according to them, Republicans have been putting things on the package that have nothing to do with coronavirus. For example, they're talking about $1.8 billion to build a new headquarters of the FBI here in Washington, D.C., right across from the Trump Hotel in the city, and they claim again that that has nothing to do with the coronavirus. Reporting live in Washington, D.C., Lorraine, back to you. Thank you, Edwin, for that report. And since the reopening of the country at the end of April, approximately 91,000 Americans have died because of COVID-19, leaving many loved ones behind. Among them are two teenage boys in Houston who lost their mother to the virus, only to lose their father two weeks later. The boy's uncle, Daniel Esquivel, joins me now. Uh, Daniel, thank you for being here, first of all, and our condolences to your family. Thank you. My first question, your sister Naomi was very young, only 39 years old, but she had underlying conditions. Can you tell us what happened? Do we know how she contracted the virus? Um, we don't exactly know how she, she contracted the virus, but um, she did have diabetes. And um, as soon as she got it, she lasted maybe about three to four days and, and she left us. That's so unfortunate. 
Tomorrow is the funeral for your brother-in-law, Carlos Garcia. He passed away two weeks after your sister. Um, he even attended her funeral. What was his illness like? Uh, well, the, the only thing that he also had diabetes, but the only thing that we know is that that um, he he was getting better. Uh, the only thing is he still had breathing problems. Uh, so they, they, they had him there for a couple more days. But uh, from what we knew, he was already starting to get better. And then all of a sudden we got a phone call that he had passed away. It's just incredible. Daniel, Naomi and Carlos were married for 24 years. Did they have enough time to make arrangements for their children, Nathan, who we know now is 12, and Isaiah, who's 14? Uh, well, uh, my sister, she didn't, but my brother-in-law, he had something in place for them um, to help them out. Yes. I'd like to ask you, how are they doing? How are they handling this difficult situation? Uh, well, they're actually, uh, they're not doing too good. Uh, today is the viewing. Uh, tomorrow is the burial. So um, we're just trying to stay strong as a family for them because uh, we just don't know how they're going to react today at 6 p.m. whenever we're there. And you started a GoFundMe campaign for the boys, uh, their living expenses, which has raised over $135,000. How are Nathan and Isaiah uh, thinking, doing right now? You were saying they're not doing too well because of, you know, the viewing and all of that. But in the days after their mother passed away, did they seem, you know, hopeful that maybe their father was going to make out of this? Yes, they, they were very hopeful. Um, I mean, we, we all were hopeful that, that he was going to come home the next day and to receive that phone call. Um, it was a shock. It was a total shock to all of us, um, especially them, because they were very, very close to their father. In your opinion, was there something that could have saved Naomi and Carlos? Uh, in my opinion, um, I, I honestly want to, I think over and over, uh, if there was something that we could have done differently, of course, you know, your mind goes races, you know, and you, you just think about so many things. But I feel like, you know, everything was done. I mean, I, I feel like everything that was done needed to be done. Uh, I don't know. It's just there's so many thoughts going through all of our heads. We're just all a mess right now. Yeah, I totally understand. And let me ask you this. Have any other members of your family contracted the virus? Uh, I believe that my mom has and she recovered from it. Um, uh, I've never I haven't gotten it. Thank God. Um, I don't know if any of my other family members, I don't think they have. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Our, how, our hearts go out to you, to the boys and to the rest of your family. We wish you healing and time. Thank you. And in Washington, thousands of people came out Monday to pay their respects to the late Representative John Lewis at the U.S. Capitol. Lawmakers, civil rights leaders and others gathered Monday afternoon as Lewis's casket was escorted into the rotunda where he now lies in state. Lewis will lie in states in the Georgia State Capitol on Wednesday. On Thursday, there will be services at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, followed by his burial at Southview Cemetery. Lewis died at the age of 80 following a six-month battle with cancer. President Trump did not attend the ceremony. 
And tomorrow, the CEOs of Amazon, Apple, Facebook and Google will testify before Congress in what will be a crucial hearing for the future of both antitrust law and big tech's relationship with Washington. It will be the first time that Jeff Bezos, Tim Cook, Mark Zuckerberg and Sundar Pichai appear for questioning together. A few Republicans on the subcommittee have signaled they will use the hearing to grill the nation's top tech CEOs on content moderation, pursuing persistent yet unsubstantiated allegations that social media platforms discriminate against conservatives. And speaking of social media, the Trump administration has formally asked the Federal Communications Commission to develop regulations that could apply to Facebook, Twitter and other tech platforms. It's a key step toward President Trump fulfilling his executive order to regulate social media. Orders asked the FCC to clarify a section of the law that has shielded tech companies from much litigation over Internet content since 1996. The FCC, which is reviewing the administration's petition, now has to decide whether to agree with the president's call for oversight or not. Legal experts say the agency has traditionally avoided regulating Internet companies in the past. In immigration news, it's been five weeks since the Supreme Court ruled against the Trump administration on the DACA program. Now, those seeking to join that program remain frustrated by the federal government's attempt to block them. Jaime Garcia has more on the story from Los Angeles. ...for the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, also known as DACA, are being put in a pending bucket by U.S. immigration authorities. And according to a government lawyer, those applications will not be processed until the Trump administration decides whether it will attempt to end the program again. Any indication that the administration is, is holding these applications or not filing them is completely ridiculous. Government lawyers indicate to a federal judge in Maryland that even though they are not processing the new applications, they are rejecting those that are right with mistakes or are incomplete. In this moment, what we're asking is, for anyone who might be eligible for DACA, um, since we haven't gotten any guidance from the administration, what you can be doing during this time is compiling all of the documentation that you will need. Um, applying for DACA for the first time is a pretty lengthy process, and there's a lot of supporting documentation that needs to be provided with your application. One month ago, the Supreme Court invalidated what it described as a capricious and arbitrary termination of DACA by the Trump administration. And just one week ago, a federal district court in Maryland ordered that the program must be restored to its original form. Both the Supreme Court and then a district court in Maryland uh, earlier this month ruled that the Trump administration has to start accepting new applications, as was outlined in the original um, DACA memo uh, from 2012. During the almost two years that the acceptance of new applications has been canceled, it is estimated that 66,000 young people have reached the required 15 years of age to apply for the DACA program. Young people who can apply for the program are losing many opportunities. But most importantly, they are still at risk or being deported. The federal judge gave to the government a period of time of 30 days to update their web page and also one week to develop a process so the new applicants of DACA know the status of their application. In Los Angeles, Jaime Garcia, U News. 
An executive order issued by the White House to not include the undocumented as part of the 2020 census has provoked outrage among immigrant activists and in many communities across the country. And as Pablo Gato explains, the move could have some unintended consequences. The president's directive not to include the undocumented in the census could have unintended consequences. It's likely that the plan excludes millions of American citizens, says the Immigration Policy Institute, an organization specialized in immigration issues, specifically 20 million citizens. The reason, they say, is that the census does not have a reliable system to check who is a citizen, a legal resident or an undocumented. This could bring a lot of confusion and an unreliable count of legal status. Pro-immigration activists say that Trump's intention when signing the directive was clear. From the beginning of his campaign, he used the immigration issue as a way to motivate his base, he says. Current estimates suggest that one state is home to more than 2.2 million illegal aliens. This could result in the allocation of two or three more congressional seats that would not otherwise be allocated, said Trump apparently talking about California. The U.S. House of Representatives has 435 seats, representing 50 states. The number of seats per state is determined by the population. And that information comes from the census. If the count of who is a citizen and who isn't is wrong, this will affect who can represent the community in the future, says this lawyer. This means that the more population, documented or undocumented, the more political power. A coalition of 20 states and 50 cities and counties have already sued the administration. They say the order is unconstitutional because the Constitution requires a complete count every 10 years of who is in the country. It does not specify their legal status. There are 12 million undocumented people in this country. We need to know where they live to distribute funds for hospitals, roads and schools, says this attorney. There are billions of dollars at play and millions of people whose legal status could be mistakenly counted. Washington, Pablo Gato, U News. More of U News after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. U News, your world, U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. Welcome back to U News. U.S. federal agents in Portland, Oregon, once again used tear gas to disperse demonstrators late Monday. The development came shortly before midnight local time. Protesters have been holding nightly protests outside the city's federal courthouse for the past two months after the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis in May. President Donald Trump said he sent the federal agents to Portland to halt the unrest, but state and local officials have said they are making the situation worse. Local authorities want to discuss the removal of those forces from Portland, but U.S. officials are warning that more officers are on the way. 
And in Arizona, seven people were arrested Monday night after demonstrators clashed with police during a protest in Tempe. At one point, officers were seen tackling a protester who was wearing a football helmet and carrying a skateboard. Police were also seen using pepper spray to try to disperse the crowd. The demonstration was organized by Tempe against police violence, Black Lives Matter and other groups. And a couple has been banned from Walmart after a video surfaced of them in, Minnesota, in a Minnesota store wearing face coverings with swastikas. The incident happened Saturday, the same day Minnesota started requiring everyone to wear masks inside indoor businesses. Another Walmart customer informed the store's manager and recorded the video as she was checking out. In the video, the unidentified woman could be heard saying she's not a Nazi, but she says she was wearing the face covering to show people what could happen if, in America if they vote for Joe Biden. The unidentified man added, quote, we're living under a socialist state. The couple left the store without incident and no charges were filed. And as a major effort continues across the country for police reform and racial justice, one girl protesting in Nebraska has inspired not only several artists, but also people in Omaha and beyond. Here's Azul Alvarez with more. Placed in windows and nestled between books, on displays at businesses and homes, a young girl stands tall. I feel like I was doing the right thing. One fist in the air and the other holding on to hope. You can't help but not look at her and, and think, you know what, there is hope for us, and she believes it. Anthony Peña is the artist behind these bright posters. But this story starts long before Peña put pen to paper. It began nearly two months ago at a protest. Me, my camera, and my mask. We all went to 72nd and Dodge. Dalton Carper is a freelance journalist and a recent graduate of the University of Nebraska. I was just kind of walking around getting my bearings and looking out for some, for some good moments. Meanwhile, witnessed the George Floyd incident. My family, we've always been um, speaking out for social justice. Gianna and Shia Jensen and their two daughters, Irie and Suri, showed up to participate in the protest as hundreds gather at the busy Omaha intersection. This family and photographer just happened to cross paths. She was like, I want to put my fist up. And I was like, oh, okay. And so she got on top of my husband's car and that's what she did, and um, her picture was taken. I turned around, I, I seriously remember saying out loud, oh my God, when I saw the moment, and uh, just pulled up the camera and took the picture. Seven-year-old Zuri Jensen captures standing on top of a car, looking out over the crowds. Casper posted the photo on Instagram, where it went viral, shared by former presidential candidate Kamala Harris. There was 85,000 likes. I think that was, I'm like, and I mean, it was really cool that he did that, but I was like, wow, like, this is, this is crazy. Azul Alvarez, U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate, and review. Join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.